This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. So as we begin this evening, I want to just quickly review of where we've gone in our course so far. In our first lecture, of course, we had compared and contrasted secular theories of knowledge. We specifically looked at rationalism, if you'll recall, where knowledge, we said, was innate. And then we moved on also in that lecture to empiricism, where knowledge comes from experience. And then we looked at fideism, knowledge is a blind faith, and we compared all those against biblical faith that teaches knowledge of any value has to come from divine revelation. We determined that only from divine revelation can we establish a biblical or what we were calling a Christian worldview. Any worldview that is not informed by divine revelation, then we said, was a secular worldview. Then in our second lecture, we moved on and we pulled the string on this concept of secular worldview and how secular, secularism, and secularization are all part of the devil's schemes as he strategizes against the Christian and the Christian worldview by attacking divine revelation. And we determined that only from divine revelation can we establish a biblical or a Christian worldview. This strategy that the devil uses included the wiles of men, the wiles of the devil, men who are bent on deceiving and preaching false doctrine, even using the lust of our own flesh to entice us to be enamored with the temporal world at the expense of the eternal. And then in last lecture, our third lecture, we explored how our current treatment or perhaps our mistreatment of the Pauline epistles has resulted in enabling false doctrine and false prophets to get a foothold in the church. And we looked at how hyper-dispensationalism has abused Paul's writings, how covenantalism has confused Paul's writings, how the new perspective of Paul has diffused the Pauline epistles, and how the liberal treatment of Paul has refused Paul's writings altogether. Now, without a good understanding of Paul and the epistles and the epistles that he wrote, it's easy for us to develop a bad eschatology. That's the topic for tonight's lecture. Now, to be sure, this specific contemporary theological issue that we're going to talk about tonight is a little different. And by that I mean it's not a movement or a systemized teaching or an organized social issue as we'll look in a couple weeks here at some of those things. Tonight, what we're going to look at is an attitude that has crept into our churches. Yes, tonight I'll be teaching on how our attitude, specifically the church's attitude towards current events, is a theological issue that must be addressed. And I think it'll become clear as we go along. On November 3rd, 1948, The Chicago Daily Tribune ran with this headline. Dewey defeats Truman. It was the morning after the general election in the United States, and that's what the Republicans, the polls, the newspapers, the political writers, And those whose candidate was, uh, the Republican whose candidate Thomas E. Dewey had expected, they had expected Dewey to win. Even Democrats had expected this outcome. But in the largest political upset in U.S. history, 
Harry S. Truman surprised everyone when he, and not Thomas E. Dewey, won the 1948 election for the President of the United States. Now, this was not the first time a major newspaper had, dare I say it, fake news. And it wasn't the last time either. You might recall a similar upset in 2016, when Donald Trump upset Hillary Clinton in what many thought would be a close election, but it would result ultimately in Hillary Clinton coming out on top. In 1948, on the other hand, it was believed Dewey was going to win by a landslide. This was no contest. The margin of victory was going to be so great that the major pollsters determined two months prior to the election that the Roper poll would no longer be taking any more presidential polls because, as Elmer Roper justified it, my whole inclination is to predict the election of Thomas E. Dewey by a heavy margin and now devote my time and efforts to other things. That was two months before the election. But by 4 a.m. on the morning after the election, it was apparent that Dewey would not be the winner. And by 10.48 a.m. on November 3rd, Thomas Dewey called President-elect Truman and conceded the election. But because the Chicago Tribune had already gone to print with the daily newspaper, we now have one of the most iconic pictures of the 20th century. President Harry Truman holding up a copy of the November 3rd, 1948 Chicago Tribune with the headline, Dewey defeats Truman, and he was the president-elect. The headline wasn't true. The Chicago Tribune had no way of knowing the future. Sure, they took a calculated risk, and they failed. Makes you trust the media, doesn't it? I probably shouldn't have told you that story before I'm going to pose this scenario to you. So this weekend is Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl, anybody know their Roman numerals? Super 56, right? The Cincinnati Bengals will be playing the Los Angeles Rams. Both teams, it would appear, deserve to be in the Super Bowl. The Bengals won the AFC North and beat the Las Vegas Raiders, the Tennessee Titans, and the Kansas City Chiefs to earn their spot. On the other side, the Los Angeles Rams beat the Arizona Cardinals, the reigning Super Bowl champs, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and the San Francisco 49ers. Both, by all standards, have rightfully earned their spot in the Super Bowl. They both have a right to play. Perhaps they're playing in what many might consider to be the greatest championship game in modern sports history, the Super Bowl. Now, I'm not a Bengals fan. I do enjoy cheering for the underdog, and they are from the great state of Ohio. And the quarterback, Joe Burrow, did attend the Ohio State University before transferring to LSU. <laughs> Where I guess I should say he won a champ national championship there. I'm not sure, and I've seen this, and I didn't really look at it to research it to verify, but I've been told that no one has ever, no quarterback has ever won the Heisman, the national championship, and a Super Bowl in their career. Joe Burrow could be the first to do that on Sunday night. So, I think I'm going to cheer for the Bengals. 
Now, let's say that Joe Burrow is suiting up on Sunday for the Super Bowl. He's getting his pads on and he's lacing up his cleats and getting everything he needs to take the field. As he's getting ready, he glances down and he sees a copy of Monday morning's, the next day, newspaper. The Cincinnati Enquirer. The headline reads this, Bengals win Super Bowl 56. Let's even say the newspaper gives a score, 42 to 36. So it was close, and let's say the paper also tells him it was one in overtime. Burrow reads a little bit more, and he finds out that he threw the winning touchdown and in overtime, and it was him who helped win the game. I don't know Joe Burrow personally. But I would think that as he reads that headline, I would think as an athlete, as a competitor, his mind would immediately shift to the game. And I would think that he would think, hey, guys, we win. Let's go out there, let's have fun, and let's win this. He'd then go out and play his heart out. He would have fun winning. He'd leave it all on the field. He'd hold nothing back. I don't know him, but that's what I think he would do because that's what I would do. I'm going to go out because I know I win the game. I want to now be the MVP. I don't think he would stay in the locker room, go to the bus and hide, and say, well, it's... It's all settled. I'll just hang out here. See, at least that's what I would think I would do. On the other hand, let's say the Rams also saw the same exact newspaper and the same exact headline and the same exact article. I think they, too, would go out there and with reckless abandon, hoping beyond hope, they could prove that paper wrong they'd refuse to accept their fate. Can you see where I'm going with this? As Christians, we've read the end of the book. We know the final score. And we know that we are on the winning side. So, we can either bury our head in the sand, sit on the bus, sit in the locker room, Hope the clock gets to all zero soon, or we can go play the game of our life and enjoy the pursuit of victory. We've won the game. But I fear that's not the way the church is behaving itself in the last days. We're quickly losing our relevance because we are either just holding on, trying to survive, or we have lost hope of Christ's return altogether. 2 Timothy 3.1 clearly warned of these days. Paul told Timothy, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. That's what he told him. Perilous times are going to come. And that is the title that we're going to use 
for our lecture this evening, Perilous Times, History and Eschatology. I have to say something about my slides. I had someone very kindly come up to me last week and say, the red is bleeding my eyes. I can't see it. So I've changed things up. I Hopefully it's a little softer on the eyes than the red uh, that you, we have, we've been having. So uh, hopefully you'll be able to see this. But look at those words there, perilous times. I'll never forget my college professor for history of civilization while I was down at Pensacola Christian College. His name was Dr. Reese. Dr. Reese told us many things about history. First, he told us that history was his story. Jesus is the centerpiece of history. Specifically, the cross is the exact center of history because it's the story of Jesus' redemption of mankind. That's what he told us about history. Secondly, he told us history is the story of what man has done with the time that God has given him. History really is the story of how man has responded to that redemption plan of God. Finally, he told us, and this has always stayed with me, he said words to the effect that what is done and is done in the past, the future is unknown. All we have is now. It's a gift, and that's why we call it the present. Have you ever heard someone say, or maybe you've even said it yourself, I miss the good old days. Or perhaps it's worded like this, they just don't make such and such like they used to. Or, it wasn't like this when I was a kid. What are they saying? They're saying that things are worse now than then. But we need to be careful when we say those things. Maybe you've thought of a different time period you'd like to live. I know I have. I think back, I've got a couple. One is, I think back to the early days of our country. I imagine what it would have been like to sit with John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. I even imagine myself whispering things into John Jefferson's ears to kind of help him as he wrote the Declaration of Independence. I've read a lot about, of John Adams. I tell you what, of two of those two, which they were very different, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, I find myself, I can relate to John Adams. I can't relate to his intellect, but I can sure relate to his fire and vigor. I like John Adams. And I, and I, I can imagine sitting there in Philadelphia as they tried to convince the Continental Congress that independence from England was inevitable. I also can imagine myself sitting in Richmond, Virginia, at St. John's Church, where the Second Virginia Convention had convened in 1775 to discuss how Virginia, how the Commonwealth, was going to address the crown. And I can imagine sitting there in that church as a firebrand lawyer from Hanover County stands up and says, Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. If you know anything about that speech, he actually 
pantomimed a dagger into his heart as he said, give me liberty or give me death. Oh, Patrick Henry. I could imagine being there with old Patrick Henry, giving him some tips on how to make that speech a little more historical. I imagine being there. I think one period of history that has so intrigued me, at least in the last couple years, since around 2014, when our world acknowledged the 100th anniversary of the Great War. I enjoy studying World War I, a forgotten war. It's a fascinating war, a needless war. Aren't they all? I imagine sometimes going over the top and fighting in that war. And then I remind myself, there were more than 40 million casualties of that war. 20 million deaths, 21 million wounded. Only about 10 million were military, the rest were civilians. There were 10 million civilian deaths alone. So many lives lost. An entire generation of men wiped out. I'm not so sure I really want to have been alive then. If I was, I wasn't going to be alive much longer. Think about the good old days with me. Days where totalitarians were appeased even as they murdered millions of people. Alliances were formed with other despots while they murdered millions of Jews in pogroms and enslaved their own people with promises of communist utopias. Or maybe remind yourself closer to home of the good old days where chattel slavery was the norm, where Jim Crow laws were just good legislation, where you could be lynched because of the color of your skin. Remind yourself of the good old days where one man's skin color gave him the right to vote, to sit in the front of the bus, to eat in the designated dining area of a restaurant where another man's skin color dictated he had no say in our nation's political process, where the back of the bus was where he was remanded, and if he could even get into the restaurant, it was in the back kitchen where he had to eat. Imagine the good old days, a country that required their service in two world wars, but not their equal rights under the law. What about the days when gender disenfranchised your vote? Or when church officials could determine your legal status and sovereigns could determine your religious beliefs? How good were the good old days, really? Yet, every generation looks at the up-and-coming generation and judges their character based on their own experiences and says, it wasn't like that when I was a kid. Yep, we all judge each other based on the subjectivity of our own experience. We judge the next generation, calling them weak-minded, insecure, narcissistic. We call them snowflakes, millennials, and addicted to their screens. We judge them as deprived of any moral character and unable to stand against the rigors of life. They don't meet our standard just like we didn't meet the standards of our parents. We judge them just like the greatest generation judged the baby boomers, who judged Generation X, who now judges the millennials. It's just a matter of years that the millennials are going to cast their attention to the generation that comes after them and say, it wasn't like that when I was a kid. You see, the past isn't all that romantic. To see this, I think we need to take a quick look at how we understand history. Our Western concept of history is not as straightforward as you might think. If I were to ask you for a simple definition of history, 
Would anybody be willing to proffer a definition? Give me a definition of history. Yes, sir. A record of things that have happened. The only thing I would add to that is a record of things that happened in the past. Right? Yeah, that is a simple definition of history. It is the study of past events. We like history. I do. I was a history major. History education. I taught high school history for three years. I tolerated seventh grade world history teaching that. In fact, it was funny. I was, uh, I, had, I was in seminary. I was teaching high school, and I had gone off. I joined the Navy to become a chaplain. I was out in Newport, Rhode Island at chaplain school when I got a call that said, hey, we're changing up your teaching schedule. We're taking away one of your high school classes. We need a male teacher in the junior high. We're giving you seventh grade world history. And I thought, I don't even want to call chaplain school boot camp. It was not that. But uh, I thought that was the push-ups were tough then. I was going to have to go back and teach seventh graders. <laughs> the best year of my life. I love seventh grade. They were great. They, they were just soaking up. I mean, I was hilarious. Uh, I could tell them stories, and they would just sit on the end of their seat, and they just they loved history. I imparted unto them the love of history. It's funny because a lot of them now are having kids of their own, and I think some even have seventh graders. Uh, and uh, it's uh, and I'm not that old. I mean, I started teaching when I was eight, so uh, you know it was. Uh, uh, but I love history. It hasn't taken you long right now to consider that I have a rose-colored view of history, even my own in the short past. So when we think of history, we think of what happened in the past. That's not rocket science. That's history. But here's the question I have to ask you. How do you know what happened in the past? Have you ever thought of that? My seventh graders were completely dependent on what their teacher told them happened. The reality is, everything we know that has happened in the past, ready for this? This is going to shock you, is theory. There's no way to prove it. Even you coming in tonight and sitting down, you experienced it. You're only going on your own experience. This has driven philosophers crazy as they try to think about it. I'd encourage you, don't think about it too much. But the reality is that everything we know that has happened to us in the past comes to us in one of two ways. We have experienced it ourselves, or we were told. Sometimes they may cross over. For example, you were there when you began walking. Remember that day when you started to walk? You were there. You experienced it. Yeah, but someone probably had to tell you that you actually started walking. And you haven't quit since. You're still walking. So your experiences are still continuing on. Do you remember when you said your first word? 
I don't. But I know I did. Because <laughs> I'm still talking. That guy up there, that ball guy won't shut up. <laughs> we know everything through experience or someone has told us. And they may cross over. But for our purposes this evening, we'll say that all experience comes through either experience or narration. What I call narration of what's happened in the past. Now, both of these should, based on what we've talked about in our first lecture where we discussed how we know things, remember our theories of knowledge? These two generators of historical knowledge, experience and narration, should raise some red flags for us. It should cause us to think, wait, 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 how do I know what I know? How do I know things actually happened in the past? And you say, well, why is that actually important? I just accept it. It's very important because did you know that the Christian faith is built on an event that had to have happened? The resurrection. There's no way around. It wasn't just a spiritual event in the, in the ether somewhere out there. It was an event that happened. Well, we've got... We've got what we would call, we got proofs, and we can, we can get there. And we talked about that in our first one. But we can't get around the fact that the resurrection had to happen. If it didn't happen, again, we go back to what Paul said, we're of all men most miserable. So we just can't just wave this off as, well, maybe it happened or maybe it didn't. But how do you trust what others have told you, and how do you trust your experience to be factual? Even the narration is depending on the experience of others. So you say, well, I'm going to just depend on, uh, uh, on what people have told me. I'm just going to depend on, on the narrative of the story. Well, that was someone's experience. We talked about this in our first lecture. So really, we can narrow our knowledge of history down to complete dependence on one thing, experience. Either your own or the experience of someone else relayed to you through writing or oral tradition. Someone wrote your history book. Someone had an opinion of how that history was going to be laid out to you. So how well do you trust your own experience or what you've been told? This is why in our English language, that single word, that word history, it's really inadequate. What do you mean? What do I mean by that? Well, we all know that there are two aspects of history. There's the story of what happened, and then there's what really happened. In fact, history, as we commonly think of it, really is just the story of what happened. Let me explain it. It might help if we talk for a minute about where we get our word history, our English word. While we only have the one word history, in our English language. It might be helpful to see that what this word means. The word history comes to our English language from the German word. Anybody here speak German? History. Or history, we're going to say. We're just going to call it, say it like we say. We're going to anglicize it. History. This German word history, which means literally what actually happened in the world of space and time. It's an objective event. That is the German word history. It's what happened in space and time. It's an actual event. So, simple facts 
objective events, the Great Depression, the Battle of Gettysburg, the sinking of the Titanic, the fall of Saigon. These are all historical events. History is the most basic definition of an actual event that occurred. It is an event in time. It occurred in space and time. The resurrection is an event. But the German language has another word for history. And this word history is Geschichte. And this word, German word Geschichte, when Germans use this word, they are referring to the internal significance of an event. It's the story that's attached to what happened in the world of space and time. And so while we call all of that history in our English language, this Geschichte is the existential significance of the event. It's not what happened as much as why that happened. This is when we say the good old days, we're actually not talking about history. We're talking about our interpretation of history. And so we're not actually objective at all when we say the good old days. We're putting our subjective spin, our geschichte on our subjective story to the event. When we say things like you can't rewrite history, which is going around today, it's a little hypocritical for us to say that because we rewrite history all the time. We say it the way we experienced it. I just mentioned the Battle of Gettysburg as a historical event. Let's use that as an example of how this works. Do you recall who won that battle? The Union Army did. It was the turning of the war. The Confederate Army was taking the battle into the north. They were actually invading the north. And it was at Gettysburg that they were turned back, all because... The Union Army found the battle plans wrapped around some cigars. Changed the tide of the war. They were turned back at this famous battle for three days from July 1st through the 3rd in 1863. Some 7,058 men lost their lives. Another 33,264 were wounded. And another 10,790 went missing. It was a brutal day in our nation's history. It was an event. Now, could you imagine with me, 20 years later, there's two veterans of that battle. And they come back for a reunion, and they meet on that battlefield. And they begin to reminisce of the battle. To each soldier, the history would be the same. There was a battle that occurred. But that same objective event would have two different meanings if, let's say, one of the soldiers was from the Union Army and the other one was a Confederate. The Geschichte would be different. To the Northerner, it was a battle that meant victory and a turning of the tide of the war. To the Confederate, the battle was defeat. It was a terrible loss. And it also meant the turning of the tide 
but in a completely different direction. One, they both have the story. They both have the event, I should say, but they put a different meaning to that event. We do it all the time. So we have, though, this romantic view of the past. Are you with me so far? We look back and we say, oh, the good old days. And I ask, were the good old days really all that good? Because I think we have a disdain for the present. A disdain for the present. So, we have to be careful about how much we romanticize the past. Christians are quick to say, if we don't learn from the past, we're doomed to repeat it. Why do we say that? Well, because it's not like we have objective events in our collective history where humanity figured it out. And man, we just need to copy what we did in the past because we figured it out. We now know how to dwell on this earth in peace and unity. We've done it. We need to learn from the past so we don't, well, we want to repeat that. No. Why do we say we don't want to learn, we have to learn from the past or we'll doom to repeat it? Because we have failed over and over and over and over. We say it because we know our past has some pretty horrible events in it. Events we don't want to repeat. For almost 6,000 years, humanity has been learning how to fail. And we've been doing it extraordinarily well. The past is not as glamorous as we might think. We often look at it through rose-colored glasses. Were the good old days really that good? Maybe for you they were. But Jim Crow was not good for everyone. The Holocaust was not good for millions. So the good old, old days are subjective opinion. But in fairness, it's all relative. Those days are better than today. Why? Because of anthropological entropy. You say, what in the world is that? Things are progressively getting worse. Man is progressively getting worse. Humanity is getting worse and worse. We are not evolving. We are devolving. Were, were the good old days really that good? No. But were they better than the future? Yes. Were we told this would happen? Evil men and seducers will, shall wax worse and worse. It's not narcissistic to think that we do have it worse than Paul had it 2,000 years ago when he wrote Timothy, wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.13. It is worse today than it was yesterday, and it will be worse tomorrow than it is today. Tomorrow has a sufficient amount of its own evil to make it worse than today. Now, this all sounds very pessimistic. <laughs> The point I want to make is that we are not responding correctly, though, to this evil of the day, to these evil days, to these perilous times. We as a church are not responding the way we should. Christians are so enamored with the past, we refuse to acknowledge our failure, and all we begin to do is start looking over our shoulder at looking at the past and saying how good it was. We get disillusioned by the present. We see the perilous times around us. But here's the clincher. Instead of forgetting those things which are behind, we start to reminisce about them. We reminisce about the good old days. When really the biblical response 
to perilous times, you know what it should be? Look ahead, for your redemption draweth nigh. We have this tremendous disdain for the here and now. We say, oh, it's so horrible here. I wish we had the good old days. But tonight, I want to present to you that we need to look forward. And here's how. We need, we need to fix our misunderstood, misunderstanding of the future. We have a misunderstood future. So I pose a question. Why do we misunderstand the future? Because I don't think we rightly divide the word of God to know that we don't need to be looking for the second coming. We, as a church, are waiting for the rapture. So this brings us to the part of the lecture where we talk about having an eye toward the future and our eschatology. What is eschatology? Eschatology is the part of theology that is concerned with death, judgment, and the final destiny of the soul and mankind. It's dealing with the future. And it's not just a crystal ball view of the future. That's not it at all. It's understanding what God's plan for the future is. This is an arm, a discipline in theology. In full disclosure, what I will present over the next few minutes will not be an exhaustive treatment of eschatology. If you thought, man, I'm going to get just eschatology tonight, you're going to be disappointed. That's an entire course all its own. In fact, Pastor Coles has, has classes on Revelation where you will get excellent eschatology. Tonight, I am going to deal with, not deal with eschatology as much as I am going to approach our attitude towards eschatology. I'm not going to talk much about eschatology as much as I'm going to. I'm going to pull some things out of it, but I'm going to talk about how we as the church are approaching eschatology. And I've given it away. We have a misunderstanding of it. Remember, we're talking tonight about attitude. And it's my hope that we can recalibrate how we approach the end times as opposed to simply teaching what will or will not happen or when it will or will not happen. I'm not going to say, here's when the rapture is going to take place. Here's what's going to take place in the seven-year tribulation. Here's all that's going to happen in the sequential events that lead up to Armageddon. Here's what the millennial reign is. I believe you have all that. At least you have academic knowledge of it. But eschatology matters. What we believe about the future matters for how we live now. A bad eschatology will mean you live badly now. With the time remaining, I hope to show that how, bad, how our bad eschatology has impacted how we view the present. And instead of looking forward to winning the game, we are burying our heads in the sand and just holding on for a wild ride that we know is going to come, and we're just waiting for Jesus. And I think this is what an incomplete view of dispensationalism has the potential to do. What do I mean by that? Because we do anticipate the Lord's return, 
And because we do know that in order for him to return, things have to be really bad. The Bible tells us that. Things are going to get worse and worse. And so we look and we say, all right, if the Lord's coming back, it just got to get bad. So let me just hold on while it gets real bad. And so we either become isolationists as a church, and we just hunker down, and we endure as the perilous times come, and we just let the storm beat against us, and we take the beating and just say, all right, but I'm not going to get involved because I'm just waiting for Jesus to come back. Or we become pessimists and realize, well, perilous times must come. Dear Lord, make it worse so you can come back sooner. It's just bad. It must happen. There's nothing we can do about it because he's coming back. And I battle with this one. I think we've gone into this prayer for revival as just a, well, Lord, pray for revival. We Revive our nation, please. If my people who are called by your name, we'll, we'll, we'll try to humble ourselves, Lord. But could you just send revival? But if you're not doing it, come back. And we just go through those motions. Or there's a third thing, and there's some who become masochists and desire persecution to prove that they're godly. And they seek suffering and say, oh, if this is going to be the way it is, I want to be part of it. I want to be counted worthy. We've not been asked to seek out suffering. We've just been asked to endure it patiently. In each of these ways, we fail to impact the world in which we live. We fail to biblically interact with our culture. And what I'm about to talk about is not new for you, but I hope it'll be a good reminder of what is to come tomorrow so that we can more effectively live for Jesus Christ today. To be sure, sometimes it can be a scary endeavor, especially when you try to read or study the book of Revelation. But did you know when you read and study the book of Revelation, there's a blessing that comes with it. Look what Revelation starts. Blessed is he that readeth. And they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things that are written therein, for the time is at hand. This is not a blessing to come in the future. You read it and then one day you'll be blessed by it. No, it's a here and now in real time blessing to be enjoyed. God has promised his blessing to those who endeavor to know more about him through his word. But let me ask this question. Should we be looking for the second coming or for the rapture. To begin, we know that the Bible promises us a literal return of Christ. Jesus came once to make atonement for sin, and he will come again to consummate his rule. Hebrews 9.27, it tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. We're familiar with that truth. We quote that verse all the time. We've quoted it so many times, but the ver next verse says, what, what the next verse says has to also be read in the context. The writer of Hebrews says, just as it is appointed unto man once to die and be judged, it goes on, he says, so just as it is appointed unto man once to die, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. This truth is mentioned and assumed throughout the entire New Testament and was taught by the apostles. The Lord's brother James refers to the future expectation of his coming when he writes, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Where did these men get this understanding that Jesus would return again? Well, Jesus himself told them. 
When sitting with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells them, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the one end of heaven to the other. The second coming of Christ is often referred to as the day of the Lord or some other similar phrase in the scriptures. It's a phrase that connotates or connotes both calamity and judgment as well as salvation. When the Lord Jesus returns, we're told in Zephaniah that that day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of the trumpet and alarm against the fenced cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. And their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Neither the silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy for he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. At the same time, the whole world will be consumed by the fire of God's jealous anger, Zephaniah 3.8. And God says that he will turn the people of pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. That day of judgment for the ungodly will be a day of rejoicing for the righteous. So Christ is going to come back. What is the nature of this second coming? What will it be like? What can we say about it from the scriptures? Well, we know that there will be a personal, visible, bodily return of Jesus Christ. Jesus will come back himself in his person. Now, this seems self-evident to us. We teach this, we preach this in our churches. It was once popular in liberal Protestant circles to believe that Jesus himself would not actually come back. Instead, the aura or an aroma of Christ would come back and an acceptance of his teaching and an imitation of his lifestyle of love would increasingly return to the earth. His spirit would just hover over us. Then the ethical norms from the Sermon on the Mount would be established and a utopia would be enjoyed by all. That's not the message the scripture gives us. The Bible teaches that the incarnation of the Son of God was not his last manifestation in the flesh to men on earth. In John 14, 3, Jesus said, and I will come again. When Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts 1, without delay, two angels came and said to the disciples, this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So the Lord's eschatological return will not be a spiritual coming to dwell in the people's hearts and make them happier and more ethical. It will be a visible, bodily, and personal return. As real as he came in the flesh as a baby, so will it be a glorious return of his fleshly body. But this second coming will be, according to Matthew 16, 27, in the glory of his Father. It appears this glory will be visible to all. In Revelation 1.7, John writes, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Christ's return will not be done secretively or stealthy. No, it will be loud and clear and announced, and everyone will know that the Son of God has come. 
it will be a fitting return for the King of Kings. So we know that there will be a personal visible return of Jesus Christ, but we also know that we don't know the time. The time of Christ's coming is unknown. Scripture does not disclose the time of Christ's second coming. Jesus says in Matthew, But of that day and hour knoweth no man. No, not the angels in heaven, but my Father only. Jesus then illustrates this teaching again with the parable of the ten virgins. Remember that story in Matthew 25? He is driving home this message to watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Despite this clear teaching, people have an insatiable desire to answer the question, well, when is it going to happen? So how do we reconcile passages that warn us to be ready because Christ could suddenly return at any moment with passages that indicate that several important events still must take place before Christ can return. And here's it. Often the reason we fail to live effectively now is because I think we are confused. Now, I need you to notice something very important. You ready for this? Every passage I quoted to support the second coming has come from various passages that speak specifically to a dispensation of the kingdom. We talked about dispensational theology last week when we mentioned three specific dispensations that our church has a constitution that it says the Bible teaches. They are the law, the church, and the kingdom. Every passage I've quoted comes from books that speak specifically to a dispensation of the kingdom. We talked about that last week in our last, or last time in our last lecture. I quoted so far from Hebrews, from James, from Matthew, and from Zephaniah. I did not one time quote from the Pauline epistles. This is important. Where we get confused is we fail to rightly divide the word of God. So when we read passages like Matthew 24 and 25 or James 5, when we read passages like this, or in Matthew where we read wars and rumors of wars, nations shall rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in diverse places. And we look around us and we see wars and we see famines and we see pestilence and earthquakes and we think, aha, the end is near but we fail to see that these are signs for the second coming. Now, it does not take long to do some quick mental math and realize that if those things are going to signify the second coming, and if the second coming is after the rapture, then we can quickly deduce that if the rapture occurred today, if it occurred tonight, then it's only about seven years from now that the second coming is going to happen. We don't know the exact time. We just know that, based upon what we read in Revelation, if the rapture took place tonight, seven years from now would be the second coming about that time. So everything in Revelation chapters 4 through 19, the seven trumpets and vials, the plagues, the rise and fall of the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, all of it, there's a lot that has to happen. It happens within seven years of the Great Tribulation. 
And maybe you can even narrow it down even more to it's going to happen a lot of that in the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. Talk about a time of Jacob's trouble. So much. You thought the last three years have been stressful? So it's not wrong to think, well, if all that is going to happen and we got a lot of movement to make to get there, certainly we're on that trajectory. Certainly we can see the trajectory of humanity and the earth heading in that direction now. But Matthew 24 and 25, according to a dispensational hermeneutic, are tribulation prophecies. It will be during the tribulation that these signs will be evident. We are not looking for the second coming of the Messiah. The Jews certainly will be, but we will not. Why? Because we're not going to be here. In fact, we as his church cannot watch for that coming because we're coming with him. We will be with him when the earth sees heaven open and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. We will be with him when all see his eyes as a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. And he will have a name written that no man knows but he himself. We will be with him. When he that is clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, we will be with him that is called the word of God. The church will be those armies which were in heaven who follow him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. We'll be joining him and firsthand witnesses to see out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, we are going to be with Him. We don't have to look for the second coming. We're going to be part of it. A major contemporary theological issue with the church, though, today is that we don't realize that this world is going to get so much worse in our absence after the rapture. You think it's bad now? You think it's perilous? It's been perilous since Paul wrote those words. We have no sign of the times we are waiting for. We have one thing to do, and that is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We should be impacting our world, our culture, our society, because there will be a time when he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Who's going to be taken out of the way? The Holy Spirit is going to be removed from this earth because the church that embodies the Holy Spirit is going to be raptured out of here. Can you imagine an earth where the Holy Spirit has been extracted? Then the earth needs to hold on because God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. But for us, we do not need to be shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word or by letter. This is why Christians are wrong to think that the vaccine is the mark of the beast. We are wrong to think 
that the Antichrist isn't any Amer is an American president or any authoritarian dictator for that matter. We are wrong to get so caught up in what we think the signs of the times are that we overlook our purpose here, like Michael Phelps said, to build bridges so we can share the gospel. That's why we're here. We can't just sit and bite our nails and just hope for the rapture that we begin skipping major eschatological prophecies to get to the second coming. And so we just look over there at that second coming when we realize that he is going to come. We're not waiting for the second coming. We are waiting for the Lord himself to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the, cl in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Where's that from? The Pauline epistles. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. These words should comfort us, not scare us. They are our hope. The church, the rapture is the church's blessed hope when he comes back for us and takes us out of here. The rapture. Revelation 19 and the Pauline epistles tell us about it. So, let me conclude. How should we then live? Now, we do need to turn to the Pauline epistles for instruction on this. Paul's instruction to Titus is very helpful. Paul wrote to Titus in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And here's what he told Titus. He said, Titus, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, the Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, living soberly, righteously, godly, zealous of good works. It leaves us no time to romanticize about the past. It leaves us no time to lament about our present. We got to look ahead. Paul reminded the church at Philippi, Church, for our conversation is in heaven. From whence also do we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Because of this, Paul encouraged them. He said, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and long for my joy and crown, stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Jesus is coming back to rapture his church. That is the event that gives us hope as Christians. It confirms that history is not a despairing cycle, but the story of God redeeming a people to the glory of his name. God is in control and Christ will come again for his chosen ones. And we must continue to work even as we look up for our redemption draweth nigh. And as we work and as we look up, we can shout with John, even so, come. Lord Jesus. My brother, Trenton, my baby brother, is a Navy chaplain as well. He's down in Camp Lejeune. He serves Marines. 
It was about two years, I don't know, a year and a half ago, and sometime in 2020. Him and I were talking. And we were talking about everything that was going on in the world. You remember 2020. It was the same as yesterday. These were not the good old days. Cities were in flames. COVID was out of control. The elections were contested. The world seemed to be in chaos. Our nation seemed to be in chaos. And I think I was probably complaining a little bit too much, saying this is a horrible time. And I remember my brother's words. He said, this is an exciting time to be alive. He said, we are living in a time when we can have the greatest impact for the gospel. Hearing him say that, I could not help but think of what Mordecai said to Esther. If thou hold together, holdest thy peace at this time, I'll paraphrase, paraphrase, then shall their deliverance arise from another. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Christian, God orders your steps. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made. He didn't say... Gabriel, why'd you put Tavis in the 21st century? We wanted him whispering things into John Adams' ear <laughs> on our independence. No, he makes no mistake of where you are. Church, we win the game. The headline is already out. But I'm, not, I'm afraid we're not playing like we win. And some of us aren't playing at all. You're on the winning side. Play like it. I fear we've allowed the secular allure of the temporal to keep us from seeing the prize of the eternal. And a proper view of eschatology is an important contemporary theological issue. A bad view will result in our inability to see past our own circumstances so that we're no longer of any relevance in our culture. We have let the secular thinking of the world distract us. And it's done it in very specific ways. One specific way, perhaps even the most specific way now, is how we are being tossed to and fro with postmodern theological relativism. That's going to be the topic of our lecture next week. Any questions? Any thoughts? Any comments? I appreciate your listening this evening. Be excited about the future. Some people say I can't think about the sweet by and by when I live in the nasty now and now. Hey, God has you right here. And one day he's going to look at you and he'll say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my rest. You know why? Because all his saints, those who live godly, shall suffer persecution. We're all going to need his rest, regardless of the time we lived. Any thoughts, questions? We'll close in prayer. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this, these thoughts you have at least reminded me of, and I hope I've been able to remind this class of. Father, help us to look forward to the rapture. It's, we don't, there are some principles that we can gain from other passages of Scripture. It's going to happen uh, and we're, we, it's going to surprise us. And so we just need to be at work, faithfully occupying until you come.
And so, Father, we do look forward to that day when we will be taken out of here and we will be with you in the air. But until that time comes, I pray that we'll remain faithful so that when you do return, you will find faith on this earth. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.